Test one, two, we on? All right. You might be thinking, why didn't you test this before you got up here? We've been testing this all week. We knew the devil would show up. <laughs> so we got a lot of mics, so we're going to make this work. Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made this city a heap. Of the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is like a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the, the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of the cloud. Uh, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, full of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It'll be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in its place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he shall bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. Father, would you open our eyes to what these words have for us this morning. That you might be glorified. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He created them to be a king and a queen. And he commanded them to have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, 
to work and keep the garden that he has put them in so that God's glory would spread over all the earth. Created man and woman in his image that they would multiply. And as they would multiply, little image bearers of God's glory would spread over all the earth. He gave them a will. And he told them they could eat from every tree of the garden except one. They could choose to eat from this tree or that tree or the tree on this side of the garden or the tree on that side of the garden according to their own choice and their own will. Yet, he told them that they could not eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if they eat of it, God told them, they would surely die. And so God built into the garden a reminder that though his creation of man in his own image, male and female, was very good, they were not God. That tree in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, reminded the creature that they were created. That God is Lord. God is worthy of all worship. But as you know, the serpent deceived them. Satan himself. And they did not obey God. And rather than seek God's glory by being obedient to His commands, they became glory thieves. Their hearts wanted to have His position. They didn't just want to reflect His glory. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be worshipped. They believed the, the lie that God is not good. That the Lord was holding out on them. That they needed to eat from the tree that God had told them not to. They doubted His goodness and worthiness. And so they sinned by disobeying God. And immediately they realized they were naked. Shame came upon them. Never before yet in the garden had there been any relational sin or conflict. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship as a husband and wife, and they had perfect fellowship with God as they walked in the garden. But death came upon the whole human race. Death became the norm, both spiritual and physical death. That day, Adam and Eve began to die physically. That day, they literally died spiritually. That's why they were hiding from God. God pronounced a curse upon the serpent. He would now slither on the ground, and the seed of the woman would be his enemy. 
Though he would strike her offspring on the heel, her seed would deliver a, a fatal blow to his head. Prophesying that from a woman, the destroyer of Satan himself would be born. And that would be Christ. And though Satan struck Christ and his offspring, the seed of the woman, it would be Satan that would be delivered the fateful blow. And death reigned on the earth. But God did clothe them. Though they were naked, though they felt shame, God provided a sacrifice. God killed the first animals that were ever killed, the first death in the garden, physical death, was done by God Himself. God provided a sacrifice that would cover the shame of Adam and Eve because of their sin. And it was the first glimpse that God is going to be the Savior. God is going to provide a sacrifice. God will be the one to cover their shame. Though Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together, that did not work. There might be some here that believe that you one day will be with God in heaven because you're pretty good. Well, that would be just like Adam and Eve sewing fig leaves for yourself. That'll never cover your shame. You can't be good enough. You're, the hole you're in is too deep. God must do something. And as we see Genesis 5, the first genealogy, we read, Adam lived 930 years and he died. Just like God said he would, he died. And Seth lived 912 years and he died. And Enosh lived 905 years and he died. And everyone began to die. Anyone who was, the one thing that was sure is they would die. Death has covered all of creation. Animals are done. Plants are done. And mankind is dying. Upon the woman, she was told that now her pain in childbirth would be increased and conflict with her own husband would be the norm. The man was told that his work would be hard by the sweat of his brow that the earth would no longer willingly give forth its fruit, but through hard labor and sweat, thorns were going to fight him. Any of you who've done any work, you see the thorns. It almost never just works out the way you plan. I'm reminded of this as we're kind of remodeling our kitchen. It seems like almost never is the cut just right? Or does it fit together just right? 
or when it's thorns and death is hanging over the earth. Until Christ came. Because of God's great love, He sent Christ, the promised Messiah. For God so loved the world, He sent His only Son. Year after year, death and hopelessness marked covered like a veil over the earth. Anyone who had hope was only in the promises of the prophets that one day a Messiah would come, that one day the serpent's head would be crushed. And God sent the promised Messiah. He was, eternally, he was the eternally begotten Son of God. He had no beginning. But He came to become truly like us, truly man. He took on human flesh, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, the eternal God, took on human flesh. He became just like us except without sin. He never sinned. He not only didn't commit a sin in an action, he never had an evil thought. He never had a selfish thought. He never had a sinful, lustful thought. He is the God-man. He lived perfectly under the law of God. He willingly carried our sin to the cross. He was born, He took on human flesh. Why? To live perfectly under the law and to go to the cross. He was born to die. He willingly chose the cross to carry your sin and my sin upon the cross. For He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement was on Him that brought us peace. He received wrath so that we can receive peace. He came to be a substitutionary sacrifice. A guilt offering which satisfied God's judgment for sin. We'll all stand before Him. We'll all give an account to God. Imagine standing in the line, going before the judge, and the judge is a perfect judge. If He sees any sin, since He's the eternal God, the punishment is eternal punishment. And you're standing there, and you are covered in filthy garments. Your sin has stained you. But Christ came to be a substitutionary sacrifice. To take your place in line. To come up to you and say, 
let me bear your name. You give me your life. I'm going to go before the judge. I'm going to die under the wrath of God for the life you live. And here, you put on this clean robe, perfect righteousness. And then you go up before the judge, and the judge will see no sin. Because I took that. I'm bearing the wrath for that. You go up there so that when you stand before the judge, you'll be found not guilty, justified, accounted righteous. So that we can confidently say with Paul, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that? Do you believe that He carried your sin to the cross? And though Jesus really died, He rose from the dead three days later, loosening the pangs of death. Though the Lamb of God shut His eyes during the hour of the power of darkness, and darkness overtook Him, as He received the wrath of God, He was crushed under the wrath of the Father. Though his eyes went dark, they opened again. And he saw. And what he saw, he was satisfied with. Because when he opened his eyes, he saw his offspring. He saw the fruit of his work on the cross. He saw you. And Isaiah 53 says when he saw his offspring, he was satisfied. Did you ever believe that Christ could look at you and say, I'm satisfied? Well, he does because his work really worked. And that lamb, though slain, is now standing. And he's alive. He rose from the dead as the first fruits of a harvest of those who have died in Christ that will come to him. Just as the first combine load of corn comes in and gives you an idea what the rest of the field is, is going to yield, Christ in his resurrection, resurrected body is the first fruits. If he's resurrected, then anyone who's in Christ will be resurrected. Every plot of a Christian that is in the cemetery, though the family stands there and weeps as the body of their loved one is put into the ground, it is a guarantee that that will be a resurrection plot someday. You go to the Middle East, it's not where did they put Christ in the grave, it's what grave did Christ come out of? He's the first fruits of 
those who will be raised. The Scripture tells us both the saved and the lost will be raised. One will be a resurrection unto life, and the other will be a resurrection unto death. How terrifying is that? Death is not going out of existence. If you're a human being, your soul goes on for all eternity. And you can't do anything about it. Those who take their lives because they want to go out of existence, they can't. Because God made them, and He made their souls to last forever. Both the dead, those outside of Christ, will rise, and those who are found in Christ will rise. One will live in the presence of God and feast with God for all eternity, and the others will experience the eternal wrath of God. It'll never end. You say, why is it eternal? It's because of who, they, who we've sinned against. We've sinned against the eternal God. And after he was raised from the dead, he showed himself to over 500 people over the course of 40 days. And then he ascended bodily into the clouds. The angel said, just as you saw him go, so you'll see him return again. And he stood at the gates of heaven. For the first time, a man was standing at the gates of heaven. A man, a, a Someone who is truly man. The most glorious angels in heaven that are before the throne of God have to cover their eyes with their wings and cover their feet with their wings because they're not worthy. And now a mere human being is standing at those gates and speaks to those gates with full authority and says, Arise, O ancient gates. Open, for the King of glory is here. Utter astonishment there is in heaven. Who would be calling to these gates? But those gates opened for Christ, and a man walked into heaven, walked into the presence of the glory of God, and sat down at the right hand of his Father on the throne, and as he sat down, he sat down as a mediator for you, an intercessor for you, Christian. He intercedes for us continually. That's mine. I died for that. I died for him. I'm praying for him. I died for her. I love her. And sitting at the right hand of God, all judgment is given Christ. Every creature will be judged at the feet of Christ. Every knee will bow before Christ. Some might say, well, I don't believe in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Him. What matters is, is what's true. There's all sorts of people that never believed in Him that'll stand, or that'll kneel before Him. Every knee will bow. Some will kneel willing, willingly because they see His glory. And others will be forced to kneel. Because this Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will bring his 
enemies to their knees. In his first coming, he came to bear the sins of many. He came to deal with sins. In his second coming, he doesn't come to deal with sins. He comes to save those. Hebrews uh, 9, 27, 28. He came to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And here's the question. Is that you? Because when Christ comes back, he's not coming for those that know about him. Oh yeah, I know about Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. He's coming for those who are eagerly waiting for him because they realize he is their only hope. This is the gospel. I thought, how, what do I do as introduction to this sermon, to Isaiah? I thought, what better than lay out the glorious gospel of Christ? This the power of God and the salvation. So many know about Jesus. So few understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and submit to it and love it and see Christ as their only hope. The way a person receives Christ is by faith. By faith. Not by works, not by something you do, not by being good enough, but by believing that I deserve punishment because of my sin. Eternal punishment. And I know that my only hope is in that perfect lamb that was sent to be a sacrifice for my sins. And the person that doesn't just know that, but grabs onto that and says, that is my only hope. That is my only hope. That is what faith looks like. It's a turning from saying, I'm going to find joy in my sin and saying, I'm going to find life in Christ. So let's look at Isaiah. You say, why Isaiah 25 for an Easter message? Well, the gospel is like a jewel that, like a diamond, you can turn it and the light hits it different. And it gives a certain sort of glory when you hold it this way and a different sort of glory when you hold it that way. And the resurrection, the culminating part of the gospel is no different. And so we want to hold up Isaiah 25 and we want to see the reflection of the beauty of the resurrection in the context of this prophet that prophesied of Christ hundreds of years before he was ever born. Here's how Psalm 25 is structured. The first five verses is a song sung by a lone singer. I think it's right to see Isaiah as the one who is singing this song. In the first five verses, he recounts the character of God, the plan of God. He remembers that God is there to help the needy and the oppressed and to destroy 
the proud enemies. The point of this uh, chapter is in verses 6 through 8. It's the shining jewel. And then verses 9 through 12 is a communal song. It's the congregation singing in light of those truths. So let's look at it. And just by the way, songs have this special effect that in the midst of great suffering, when, when Israel had no temple, when they were exiles, and they had no place to go gather in worship, the Psalms acted as a way to teleport before the presence of God. And to remember that He hears us. You ever notice when you're singing a song, it's almost like you're taken out of the circumstances that have you weighed down and these glories are set before you? In a sense, that's how Isaiah 25 acts. As we're going to see, Isaiah 24 is quite depressing as the judgment day of God. But here's what we see. O Lord, you are my God. And I will exalt you. I'll praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. So Isaiah recounts the wonderful things the Lord has done. Plans formed of old. Isaiah's God is a sovereign God who plans all things. Faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap and the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It'll never be rebuilt. So this is picturing, I think, the city of Babylon, which represents all man's uh, pride that builds these big cities and thinks, boy, aren't we great. Look at what we've built. Look at what we've done. He says, it's going to be in a heap. It'll never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you are a stronghold to the poor and a stronghold to the needy in his distress. Something we should never forget. God is a stronghold, not to the proud, but to the needy. To those who realize they can't do it on their own. Most people reject Christ not because they say, I hate Jesus. They just don't think they need him. They're proud and arrogant in themselves. They think they're fine. They would do well to listen to the pains they feel in their body. They scream, you're dying. You're dying. Your body is not getting better. It's getting worse. And then he says, you've been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. 
So the song of the ruthless is put down. The picture is this. Those that are in Christ, as a storm comes, they're sheltered inside walls. Or as the heat of the day comes, they're sheltered like a cloud. And that's Isaiah's song. And then he says this. On this mountain, on this mountain, it's an exclusive mountain. Not on that mountain. Not on the mountain over here. On this mountain, in Jerusalem, in Zion, only in one place, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples. That's inclusive. This, is, this feast that he's going to speak of is for all the peoples, not just Jews, but Gentiles. But it's only in one place. It's on this mountain. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Now, this is really interesting in light of Isaiah chapter 24 that speaks of God's judgment at the very end uh, on the world. Because in Isaiah 24, 5, Here's the state of the earth. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Now listen to this. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. And all the merry-hearted, all the partiers sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. And strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city, the wasted city is broken down. The house is shut up and no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is, is banished. Desolation is left in the cities. The gates are battered into ruins. So you have this picture that though there may be wine, the wine will not make the heart merry. Though there may be strong drink and instruments and in all this partying, there will be a sadness, there will be a guilt, there will be death. Isn't the hangover interesting? Though it was so fun, it comes with bitterness after it. But the text we just read said something quite amazing. That when the Lord of hosts makes a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and wine well-refined, it says, 
and he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, that is the veil that is spread over all the nations. So the picture is this. You have all these nations. They don't have joy. In fact, there's this dreary veil or sheet that is laying over top of the people. A sadness. What is the veil? What is the veil? Look at what he says. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering. So God is swallowing this sheet that is over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. Think about it. On the greatest day of your life, and as joy starts to root up in your heart, you can think the thought, yeah, but I'm going to die. You know, as the kitchen remodel is done in my home, yeah, but I won't live in this home forever. This home will be gone. Boy, that was fun with my friends last night. Yeah, but they're going to die. I'll never forget watching the interview between Ken Ham. If you've ever heard of the Ark Encounter, they, they rebuilt Noah's Ark to the size that, that uh, the dimensions the Scripture reveals. And Bill Nye, the science guy, came to see it. And it's recorded. And you can go watch it. And they're walking around, and Bill Nye, you know, thinks... These are the biggest idiots on the face of the earth. Uh, believing what the scripture says um, and that their scientists aren't very smart. And, and Ken Ham asked him a question. He says, so what happens in the end? What happens when you die? And Ken Nye says, or not Ken Nye, Bill Nye says, well, you're done. That's all there is. And Ken says, that's all there is? You're just done when you die? And he says, yeah, that's all there is. And then he says, well, then why do you care what we're doing here? Why do you care about climate change? Why do you care? Because in the end, we're all done. And and then he says, well, you have to pass on your genes to the future and that your children might achieve great things. And then Ken, Ken Ham says, yeah, but then they'll die. And then he says, well, yeah, but the purpose of this earth is to live. And he says, yeah, but after you live, then you'll die and then you're no more. And then he says, yeah, but there will be new scientific discoveries that will help our offspring. And he says, who cares? They'll die. What's the point? It's, the, it's a funny conversation because Bill Nye isn't going to win. Because if there's a covering over the earth and it's death, and that's all there is, then there's no purpose in this world. There's no purpose for Bill Nye to do anything. Because it's all meaningless. And it just reminded me, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, you know, he says, well, I have all the wisdom 
the more wisdom anyone on earth, but then he realizes, guess what? The wise and the fool, they both die. All is vanity. In 1 John 2, John says, don't love the world or the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. So in chapter 24, you see that though there's all these desires and all these things you can try to find happiness in, you're not ultimately going to find happiness in those things. But there is some food, and there is some drink, and there is a party that'll satisfy. And it's a party that doesn't have lingering over it, lingering over it, yeah, but you're going to die. Because the very veil that's taken off is that death itself, the last enemy, is swallowed up in Christ. Jesus destroyed death with death. When he rose from the dead, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Death has no claim on a sinner whose sins have been satisfied. In Hebrews 2.14, the writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, Jesus, likewise, partook of the same things. That through death, now get this, I know we're at the end of the sermon, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then listen to this, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, everyone on this earth fearing death. Everyone on this earth, you imagine being Elon Musk without Christ? All this money, all this wisdom, this great mind, but he's going to die. All this stuff will be someone else's stuff. That mind will be gone. But, Christ has come. He took on human flesh to destroy death by dying in your place. So that you no longer, though you live in a present evil age, that is true. Though evidence of the curse is all around us, that is true. No longer do you need to fear. Because Jesus said, though you die, yet shall you live. And then he says, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproaches of his people he'll take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Very familiar words, really similar to Revelation 21, the very end of the Bible. In verse 3 where he says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne be, said, Behold, I am making all things new. What an incredible hope we have. Later in Isaiah, we get, a, we get even a richer picture of this feast and this meal. Isaiah 55 says this, and this is directly to you, the fact that you're still alive, that you're still sucking air is by the grace of God. And if you're lost in this room and you don't know Christ, many others have passed in to a Christless eternity with no hope, just a fearful expectation of judgment. But you're here. And this is an invitation from God himself to come to this feast, to come into the life where you no longer need to fear death to come feast on the fruits of the new covenant here's what he says come everyone who thirsts i know you're thirsty if you're outside of christ i know you're thirsty and you're still looking you think the next job you think the next vacation the next relationship the next house the next car is going to bring happiness. It won't. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Remember, who's he for? The poor and the needy. And here's the beauty. Though this is the best food there's ever been on the face of the earth, it costs nothing. It's all by grace. Come by and eat. Wine and milk without money and without price? Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast love, sure, love for David, just as God is going to come through on his promises to David. If you thirst and you accept this invitation and you say, that is my only hope, I know this word is not Sam's word, but these are words of life made exactly for the sinful soul. God saves no good people. He only saves the poor and needy those who have no hope in and of themselves, but good news, you're invited to a banquet. And at that banquet, there's forgiveness of sins and the fear of death can be gone. Revelation 22, the very end of the scripture says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now get this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Two groups of people. Those who've washed their robes clean 
Well, those robes are given as a gift. They're Christ's righteousness. And when God gives you those, He gives you the new birth. And no longer is your life marked by practicing the things you used to practice. Though you struggle with sin, your life's now marked with wanting to live for Christ. And so He ends like this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride. That's all the Christians in this room say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And they'll let the one who desires take the water of life without price.